Good evening, welcome. Our speaker tonight is Dr. Mark Delp. Dr. Delp is the Dean of Faculty at Zaituna College, a liberal arts college in the Islamic tradition in Berkeley, California. He spent the last 30 years studying and teaching primarily in the fields of ancient and medieval philosophy, especially the metaphysics of St. Thomas Aquinas and Neoplatonism. Dr. Delp has asked me not to go through his extensive list of publications or <laughs> uh, to elaborate any further on the, um, on the introduction. We're very happy to have him. Welcome, Dr. Delp. Thank you very much, and thank you to everyone at uh, St. John's College for getting me out here, asking me out here. Uh, I've told them I've never been out, I have been out the East Coast for 30 years, so they've done me that favor. So um, I'm going to read you something out of my own background. Um, I'm going to stand away from the microphone because uh, I think the hall has an acoustic sufficient actually to carry my voice. And if I stand too closely, you get puffs of percussive air. And so I would rather do this. So anybody who can't hear me, please let me know as I read my paper. And I'd be glad to speak up. Is it OK so far? Up? OK. No, it's good? OK. And a little more slow just because of the acoustics. Slowly, OK. <laughs> oh, it'll take a while to get back to you. OK. So during a visit to Zaytuna College last February, um, Dr. Eva Brand spoke to me and my colleagues about how it might be possible for sacred scripture, say the Bible or the Quran, to be studied according to the same method St. John's uses to study great books. In a subsequent paper she wrote for our journal, Renovatio, Dr. Brand discussed the special qualities of the revealed text. It's problematic handling by secular colleges, and possible reconciliations that would allow it to be studied for what it actually claims to be, a book authored by God. Dr. Brand's conclusions were hopeful and were founded on the creative imagination of the reader. I agreed that for a secular reader to approach sacred scripture, taking seriously its radical claims, a sympathetic and energetic imagination would be crucial. When asked to come here to St. John's to participate in your summer lecture series, I felt compelled to add to the discussion, for I am, after all, a Catholic, Christian, as well as being the dean of the Muslim college. One would think that, since I have never taught anywhere but religious colleges and universities, I would have many insights as to how scripture is taught in, sacred, in a sacred setting. Alas, the historical critical methods used to study scripture in seminaries are for the most part secular. Sacred scripture, however, is a big topic. And there have been so many books from ancient to modern times written on methods of interpreting it that I decided to focus on mystical books instead. Books that, besides writing on sacred texts, manage to achieve a sacredness in their own right. Not only will this focus be more manageable for me, but it will allow me to show you a way of reading sacred books regardless of their geographical or historical provenance, that is, experiential 
founded on simple intuition of words and things, and profoundly concerned with the unknowability of God. Most of all, because it is ancient and arose out of a metaphysical worldview different from our own, radically different, it approaches sacred texts in a way that are completely unfamiliar to most of us. And that is a good thing for freeing our imagination to consider sacred texts in a different way. For practical purposes, I will define mysticism as a theological tradition whose intellectual and devotional practices aim toward experiencing the radical presence of God apart from any image, conception, or a systematic understanding of his nature, and whose goal is ecstatic union with him. The tradition draws heavily from Neoplatonism, a very unfortunate and derivative name, for it was the first great synthesis of Platonism, Aristotelianism, and Stoicism, as well as other smaller mystery schools. But as we will see, the key to every subsequent mystical formulation of the soul's unity with the Godhead was Aristotle's theory of human knowledge, which for the first time in the history of Western philosophy made the mind's understanding of a thing depend on its becoming identical with the things in material form. As my title suggests, not to mention it, title, <laughs> Words and Things, Mystical Readings of Sacred Books. Words and Things, Mystical Readings of Sacred Books. Okay. I have to find my way. <laughs> um, but as we will see, the key to every subsequent mystical formulation of the soul's unity with the Godhead was Aristotle's theory of human knowledge, which for the first time in the history of Western philosophy made the mind's understanding of a thing depend on its becoming identical with the things in material form. As my title suggests, a motif running throughout my paper will be the strikingly thin line between words and things in the mystical theologian's theory and practice of reading scripture. Finally, I will include in my discussion both Christian and classical, classical mystics. For not only did the latter influence the Christian tradition enormously, their writings were considered by the, their contemporaries either to be or be about sacred texts. So in considering sacred texts, I want you to keep in mind that we are broadening our understanding of them um, beyond the Abrahamic tradition to the classical tradition I prefer uh, the classical tradition to the pagan tradition. So when you hear me say classical or classical, sometimes classical pagan, I, I, I want to sort of get our, our minds off paganism, which is much misunderstood. Let us first consider the topic of words and things. For a medieval theologian, word, in the Greek logos, and in the Latin verbum, could mean the sign we read in any book, a metaphysical principle, a mystical symbol, or most profoundly, Christ himself as the word of God. St. Augustine called the immaterial concept of the mind the verbum, verbum mentis, the word of the mind. For rather than being a passive participant 
in the act of knowledge, the mind, according to Augustine, must respond to the form it receives from without. And it does so by speaking that form within itself and to itself. In thinking, one makes a kind of covenant between the knower and the known that constitutes a concrete analogy with God speaking things into existence through his own word. Covenant, by the way, is one translation of the Greek term symboloi. And it should be kept in mind when we come to analyze the nature of religious symbol, which we will see is the variously shaped seal forged in the spiritual imagination of the bond between ideas, words, and things. Augustine also believed that creatures were words spoken by God into existence through the Word, Christ, and that the Holy Spirit was the uncreated breath animating and preserving all things. It was as though God, through Christ and the Holy Spirit, was simultaneously writing and reading. In this connection, we should note that in antiquity, it was the exception to read books silently. Augustine tells of his teacher, St. Ambrose, sitting alone in church, silently reading a book. So absorbed was Ambrose in the reading that he did not notice the young Augustine's surprise that he wasn't speaking the words. Given their metaphysical understanding of the word, we might imagine that in those days it was common to regard, that speaking, to regard the speaking reader as giving breath and life to the words of a book, thus making them a kind of higher sign, one closer to the ideas they signify. The Eastern Church Father, St. Maximus the Confessor, went so far as to conceive of the divine word as unfolding like a great cosmic seed into a virtually infinite network of created words, which in turn would constitute the inner principles by which things themselves would unfold their specific natures. Quote, from all eternity, says Maximus, from all eternity, God contained within himself the pre-existing words, or loboi, of created beings. When, in his goodwill, he formed out of nothing the substance of the visible and invisible words, worlds, he did so on the basis of these words. A word of human beings likewise preceded their creation, and a word preceded the creation of everything that has received its being from God. In the wisdom of the creator, individual things were created at the appropriate moment in time in a manner consistent with their words. And thus they received in themselves actual existence as beings." End quote. So what is the primary meaning of word? Are these usages merely metaphors? Whatever the answer may be, it is certain that for a traditional Christian, Christ is literally the word of God, and that any ancient or medieval theologian would have considered the conventional words of everyday speech to be dim reflections of that primordial divine love. It's also important to remember that in Genesis 1, God's act of creation is explicitly derived, described as an utterance Quote, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now Augustine's exegesis of this passage 
is long and convoluted. But there is no doubt that he believed that the word God uttered in the beginning was Christ, the divine Logos. Light itself, then, came from a word. About 600 years later, St. Thomas Aquinas expanded Augustine's mystical theology by tracing the divine words of creation to divine thoughts. At once incorporating Aristotle's theory that words signify thoughts and transcending it by locating those thoughts in the mind of God. Quote, St. Thomas, the knowledge of God is the measure of things because it measures the essence and truth of things for, because it measures the essence and truth of things for everything has truth of nature according to the degree in which it imitates the knowledge of God. As the great modern commentator on the works of Aquinas, Joseph Pfeiffer, says, quote, what does this signify? It signifies that things can be known by us because God has creatively thought them. As creatively thought by God, things have not only their own nature, but are creatively thought by God. Things also have a reality for us. Things have the power to reveal themselves to our minds because God has creatively thought them. And this was the way they thought back then. There's an interesting correlation between the traditional Christian notion of the verum mentis, the word of the mind, and Aristotle's theory of how a word is generated. So now we're going to speak a little bit about Aristotle. As Augustine believed that in gaining knowledge about a thing, the mind gives birth to a word within itself, so Aristotle concluded that by the presence in the mind of a thing's immaterial, uh, excuse me, so, that, so Aristotle concluded that by the presence in the mind of a thing's immaterial form, the mind produces a concept. So again, by the presence of a thing, of the, of the thing's immaterial form in the human mind, the mind produces a concept. Although he did not call it a logos, Aristotle nonetheless considered the concept as the offspring of the mind's union with a thing. Indeed, because he conceived of the intellect as a pure potency to be actualized by the forms of things, he went so far as to say that the mind literally becomes the thing in knowing it. By abstracting all the material conditions from the form as it is found in the individual, the mind eventually produces a purely immaterial concept that signifies not the individual, but the common nature of all the individuals of a species. So this is basically, in a nutshell, Aristotle's theory of abstraction. In any simple act of knowledge, the abstract form becomes the essential nature of a thing impressed on the passive intellect like a seal on a featureless surface of wax. Indeed, so real was the presence of a thing's form in the intellect that Aristotle described their union as a kind of contact or a touch. And Aristotle is, is ex 
except for Plotinus, almost unique in describing uh, thought as contact with things. Um, <clears throat> mind, and this is a quote from Aristotle, mind knows itself by participating in its object, for it becomes a knower by thinking and touching, with the result that mind and its object become the same thing. So the mind, for the, for the form of the thing, which is called the essence of the thing, its actualization of the intellect is complete. The intellect is completely passive. The thing form is completely active. Uh, excuse me. The intellect is completely passive. The thing's form is active, and the union without is is seamless. And yet, in the actualization of the passive intellect by that active form, there's feeling. There's affect. This is something that I think we we don't think about when we think of Aristotle's theory of knowledge often enough, is that when the form of a thing, which is admittedly immaterial, actualizes the form of the intellect, there's, there's feeling. It's not just a kind of um, immaterial, uh, um, an immaterial vapor. <laughs> there's real feeling. Because the concept is the immediate being of a thing in the mind, it is the first to signify the thing to the mind. Whereas spoken and written words are posterior, both in their genesis, they unfold the, the immaterial sign in a material sound and form, and in their functions as signs. They signify things only indirectly through the agency of the concept. So words do not signify things directly. Words signify the idea, and the idea signifies things. This is a reversal of the way modern philosophy considers um, the signification of words. So if you can just try to imagine your word does not signify a thing, according to Aristotle, or any, anyone in that metaphysical paradigm directly. It's the idea that does. And if the idea did not signify it, the word wouldn't signify it at all. Accordingly, the ideas of concepts or concepts of the mind make up the primary human language by which we make contact with and communicate to each other the nature of things. And as the first immaterial unfolding of intelligible content from the concept, the definition preceded and made intelligible its material expression in verbal form. So you have a comparable, let's see, um, precedence between the concept and the word and the, def the mental definition and the verbal definition. The verbal definition is that with, by which we communicate the essence to each other. But prior to that, there's an unfolding which is immaterial, and that is the definition that takes place before words. As the first immaterial unfolding, of intelligible content from the concept, the definition preceded and made intelligible its material expression and verbal formulas. Ironically, it is precisely because of the importance of the concept in human knowledge that in Aristotle's philosophy, words will always have a kinship with things that is not possible for one who holds a more materialistic doctrine of human knowledge. So words are subordinated to concepts, 
But precisely because of that, they have a closer relationship to things, is what he's saying. No subsequent theory of knowledge achieved a comparable intimacy between thing and mind. And perhaps because of this, Aristotle's theory became the dominant philosophical model of human knowledge for all three Abrahamic faiths in the Middle Ages. So if you want a comparable language, it's a, uh, as I, I, I'm, I'm fond of thinking of, I, I think the analogy may be right, but you can contact, you can communicate with anybody in the world, uh, with any economist in the world, by a sing, uh, simple single language of uh, international economy. At that time, you could communicate with anybody about the nature of the mind, at least in the broader Mediterranean world, by Aristotle's theory of knowledge. It is the common knowledge. Now, Aristotle's forms, while rich in power to communicate, could never signify beyond the natural order. And this made them partly opaque in the eyes of Christians, who, believing that all things have been created by God, also believed that they were likenesses of the divine essence. The doctrine of creation thus provided an extra dimensionality to things, an opening for minds to conceive of things as signifying both what they are according to their specific nature and what God is by their likeness to him. As words spoken by God, they speak of themselves and of their creator. In this metaphysical expansion of nature, St. Thomas penned the following formula, res naturalis inter duos intellectus constitutas. Natural things are situated between two intellects, the divine and the human. Christians claim that the Bible was authored by God, which means that the words of scripture have a special kinship with natural beings. Both were created by God. Both are, as it were, creatures, the words of scripture and natural beings. Both immediately flow from the divine mind. But natural beings were also thought to speak of God and nature as a whole to be its own book. The foremost authoritative passage in scripture for this way of seeing nature is St. Paul's statement in his letter to the Romans, chapter one, verse 20. The invisible things of God are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. And this was the, the scriptural passage that was the authority for all philosophical thinking, all theological and mystical thinking on, uh, on the knowledge of God being derivable from natural beings. Accordingly, accordingly the medieval theologian would have a comparable expectation in reading the book of nature as he would reading the book of the word, namely that both things and words would not only have the power to signify God, but also to bring the reader into his presence. And it is this latter power that would be most important for the mystical theologian. As I have mentioned, in the mystical worldview, together with grasping the essence of things, the intellect also grasps the traces of the divine essence, which mystics called the divine perfections. And as communicating to the contemplative mind, they had divine names. 
Indeed, attributes such as oneness, truth, goodness, beauty, wisdom, life, etc., etc., it's not one. Because they belong properly to the divine essence, were thought to signify beyond creatures. So because these perfections, these imminent attributes that were more proper to God than creatures, because they belong properly to the divine essence, they were thought to signify beyond the creatures who participated in them. St. Thomas says, quote, and this is very technical, so I, I won't be able to really <laughs> uh, explain this to you right now, but I have to read it to you anyway, because it's very important. Uh, by the term wise, quote unquote, applied to man, this is St. Thomas, we signify some perfection distinct from a man's essence and distinct from his power and existence and from all similar things. Whereas when we apply it to God, we do not mean to signify anything distinct from his essence or power or existence. So this, is, this is word as predicate, wisdom, I should say. Thus also this term wise applied to man in some degree circumscribes and comprehends the thing signified, whereas this is not the case when it is applied to God. But it leaves the thing signified, that is God, as uncomprehended and as exceeding the signification of the name. I really could explain this to you, but I can't really right now. But I'll just say that in short, what it means is, while the name wise is proper, the name wise is proper to humanity because that's what we see first is human wisdom. That's what we encounter first, and that's where the name comes from. We name what we encounter first, and that's human wisdom. So where the name is proper to humanity, the spiritual reality it signifies not. Now, a large part of divine worship in the old days involved discerning which attributes belong properly to creatures and which to God. And because creatures are word, words of God, a related question had to be answered. Which attributes signify beyond the nature and which are part of its definition? So is life part of the definition of a human being? Is existence part of the definition of a human being? We say rationality is, but do we say wisdom is? Do we say beauty or goodness is or truth? It's not part of the definition. It's not part of the nature is how they saw it. Here we see how the relation between words and things became more complex with the Christian idea of creation. For concepts themselves must now signify not only things, but also their supernatural attributes. And as signifying concepts, words must follow suit by signifying in both imminent and transcendent modes. The latter of which, and this is very important, their signification as transcendent modes, the, that made them into sacred symbols. That transformed the word into a sacred symbol. Because the word no longer signifies the nature qua nature, but the nature qua participant in divine perfections. And that could only happen with a, a belief in creation. 
In other ways, this intuitive discernment of divine perfections followed a similar pattern to Aristotle's process of abstraction. Only instead of stripping away the inessential attributes of things to arrive at their common nature, Aristotle's abstraction, the mystic first identified the divine perfections amid the natural attributes of things. So by this, this is really difficult. The most difficult thing to understand about this is both what perfections are and how they're arrived at. And so the mystic looked into things and, and discerned either by grace or by desire right, to find um, the source of his or her own being. The mystic discerned things, uh, uh, attributes about things that didn't belong to things as you know, according to their essence of what they were. They were actually things that they participated. So the first mystic first identified those perfections, right? Amid all the attributes that be actually belong to things, flesh, right? All the, ac all the Aristotelian uh, uh, accidents, remember? Of uh, the 10 categories, you've got nine accidents. Apart from all of those, and even the substance, something is left over, and this didn't exist in Aristotle's philosophy. That is, some, the ideals which really actually are part of Aquinas' synthesis with Platonism. You've got ideas, is basically what I'm saying. <clears throat> so after identifying the divine perfections amid the natural attributes of things, they then proceeded to abstract the material conditions by which the perfection is manifest in the creature. For example, they would abstract the idea of wisdom from its material in ex expression in individuals. Your wisdom, my wisdom, or wisdom. Seeing it as a gift of God rather than a quality following upon human nature. And then, they, by an act of the spiritual imagination, they would attempt simultaneously to magnify and intensify the perfection to catch a glimpse of how it might exist in its source, the divine essence. And this is basically the beginning of what mystics called anagogy, or the upward way, upliftment. It is not an exaggeration to say that most of the iconographies of ancient and medieval religions were created by mystical theologians who, entering into a state of rapture in the presence of a divine perfection, use their spiritual imagination to give it intelligible form as a sacred symbol. The entire panoply of forms signif signified by scriptural words were, in this picture, the immediate products of the inspired intuitions of scribes in a state of ecstatic communication with the author, God. As Dionysius, the Areopagite says, quote, to copyists who love the beautiful in mind, the persistent and unflinching contemplation of the sweet-savored and hidden beauty will confer the unerring and most godlike appearance. Naturally, then, the divine copyists unflinchingly mold their own intellectual contemplation to the super-essentially sweet and contemplated beauty of God. That is the least complicated quotation I could get from Pseudo Dionysius, 
who sentences commonly went on for a page or more. <clears throat> um, but his, his main point is that the product of union with the divine was created. Union with the divine, the ecstatic union, union with the divine, this intense affective experience was necessarily created. And so this is what I'm going to talk about now. So the perfections as a whole were conceived of as lights or illuminations in things. This is their biggest name, their most important name. The perfections were lights, for they had in common the power to illumine the intellect and turn it from the creature to the creator. And again, I quote Joseph Pieper, their brightness and radiance is infused in things from the creative mind of God, together with their essential being. It is this radiance and this alone that makes existing things perceptible to human knowledge. End quote. Like the Aristotelian concept then, the immaterial perfection, once abstracted from its material trappings in the individual, made the mind identical with the thing. So we have another instance of identity between mind and thing. Only in this case, the thing was not the essential form, not the essence, but a trace of the divine presence in creation. Further, since every perfection was alike variously shaped, the contemplation of each perfection ultimately became the contemplation of light itself, which is the first unfolded attribute of God's transcendent goodness. Contrasted then with the Aristotelian model of abstraction, which always ended in an intelligible form, a comprehensible form, the mystical abstraction, called anagogy, ended only in, in the formless Godhead. So the end of anagogy was no intelligible essence. Because of the profound differences in the nature and function of Aristotelian abstraction and mystical anagogy, the words and secular and sacred texts must be approached differently and with very different expectations. Because in sacred texts, they are often raised to the level of a symbol. Words challenge the mind at the very gate by demanding that it be purified of every fragmented intention and possess an intense desire to move from the manifest form to the reality behind it. Further, they often signify enigmatic and even incommensurable meanings pertaining to the divine essence. Quote from Pseudodionysius, the Godhead gave the hierarchy under the law, imparting its most holy gifts to them, who are children according to the word, by faint images of the true and copies far from the archetypes and enigmas hard to understand and types having in contemplation concealed within so as not to wound weak eyes by the light shed upon them." End quote. The symbols of scripture are providentially fashioned both to enlighten the intellect with many and varied spiritual forms and to turn it away from these forms once they are seen as veils concealing the truth of God. Regardless, however, what kind of symbol the mystical reader encounters, he or she can see the scripture as the perfect mechanism for both returning the soul from the many to the one and sending it out 
from the many, as sending it out into the many from the one. For the mystic, this great unfolding and enfolding is experienced as an expansion and contraction of a mental discourse. Again, Sutta Dionysius. The discourse in, in, descend, in descending from above to the lowest is widened in proportion to the measure of the descent. But now, in ascending from below to that which is above, it is contracted in proportion to the ascent. And after a complete ascent, it will become wholly voiceless and will be wholly united to the unutterable. In a contrasting passage, Dionysius will speak of the beings in closest proximity to God, the seraphim and the cherubim, as being far from silent as they receive the outpouring of divine perfections before they unfold into materiality. Quote, in the infinitely pure receptacle of their souls, these are the angels, the highest angels' souls, they receive the fullness of his spiritual gifts. They sing with voices that never grow silent the glorious hymn of the divine praises. They cry out and are never silent because they know and understand divine truth always and unchangeably. End quote. So here the word has no signification beyond ecstatic celebration. Right? Indeed, the mystic, finding himself at the end of words and things, must imitate the highest angels and cry out continuously from the superabundance of a joy so intense that it can only be expressed by inarticulate sound, by a tonal release of breath. And mystical theologians call this divine ecstasy, which means literally to stand apart or outside. Accordingly, as Meister Eckhart says, quote, the soul must dwell above herself if she is to lay hold of God, end quote. Another quote from the same mystic might shock the modern religious reader for its morbid intensity. Quote, and just as one can die of fright before the blow is struck, so too one can die of joy. Thus the soul dies to herself before she steps into God. End quote. Now God's infinitude was conceived as a superabundance of power and love. As Aquinas says, God is called good because he is diffusivum sui, diffusive of himself. And God created the world out of an excess of love, and thus, if the mystic is to imitate God in all his attributes, then she would give ungrudgingly to others what she's been given. We have seen how the mystical theologian seeks to return the divine perfections in things to their primordial unity, and now we see how, in turning back to communicate to others, the formless and wordless ecstasy of the divine presence, she must adopt words and symbols that shape and give intelligible contour and sound and narrative to it. The principle of creative creativity by superfluity of divine power, expressed in many mystical texts and rhetorical excess, is found in the mystical philosopher Proclus as a metaphysical formula. Every producing cause is productive of secondary existences because of its completeness and superfluity of power, end quote. So the ecstasy of the mystic is this superabundant power. It's superabundant unified power, and her desire to unfold it into multifarious forms proceeds 
from the law of providence itself, which makes the very act of turning towards creatures creative and beneficial to a sacred community. Let us compare further the Christian and classical, I'll say it, pagan versions of the ascending and descending paths of the inspired soul. Now, I'm going to, these two passages are especially interesting because the, the whole discussion of what's sacred and secular should expand a little bit because so many um, classical pagan texts were considered sacred <laughs> to classical pagans. <laughs> um, but the interesting thing to, to note and what I want to point out here is the metaphysical structures underneath are identical. They're identical. It was a common language of enlightenment, of upliftment, and also of creative productivity. So first, I quote Christian Pseudodionysius. So he's talking about the, the synaxis, Greek word for the Holy Communion. The divine initiation of the synaxis, although it has a unique and simple end-folded, that is, seminal source, is multiplied out of love towards man into the holy variety of symbols and travels through the whole range of, supreme, of supremely divine descriptions. Yet, uniformly, it is again collected from these into its own proper monad and unifies those who are being reverently conducted towards it. You can't get a uh, quotation from Pseudodionysius. That really is going to be immediately clear to most people, I'm sorry. It's the best I could do. Next we hear from Proclus, the pagan, pagan hierophant. He was a hierophant, a, a disclosure of sacred things. He was a priest, Proclus. You know, his, his most well-known book is The Elements of Theology. Theology, not philosophy. <clears throat> so Proclus, speaking of the creative procession and return of the mystical mathematician, says that he moves by means of a spiritual imagination. So you have comparable unfolding and unfolding. Quote, and this is why we use diagrams to illustrate the structure and construction of figures and their divisions, positions, and juxtapositions. We invoke the imagination and the intervals that it furnishes, since the form itself is without motion or genesis, indivisible and free of all underlying matter, though the elements latent in the form, or seminal in the form, are produced distinctly and individually on the screen of the imagination. So the imagination is a screen for invisible, intelligible, mathematical forms. But if it should ever be able to roll up its extensions and figures and view their plurality as a unity without figure, then in turning back to itself, it's always how it's explained, re return to self, returns to return to self, is return to God. In turning back to itself, it would obtain a, a superior vision of the partless, unextended, and essential geometrical ideas that constitute its equipment. This achievement would itself be the perfect culmination of ge geometrical, geometrical inquiry. This is the end of geometrical inquiry. It's not 
it's not the proofs, right? It's not even the consideration of the axioms. It is actually the return of the intellect to the partless realities of which the geometrical forms, even imagined, are the images. So, and also just to show that he actually was a priest. This achievement would itself be the perfect culmination of geome geometrical inquiry, truly a gift of Hermes, leading geometry out of Calypso's arms, so to speak, to more perfect intellectual insight and emancipating it from the pictures projected in the imagination. To sum up one thing, it's not the last thing I'm going to say, but close to the last, to sum up the differences between the Aristotelian and mystical paths of knowledge, we might say that the first phase of the mind's identity with a form, that of Aristotle's theory of abstraction, may be called cosmophony, the manifestation of the world. While the second mystical phase of identity with the sacred symbol may be called theophany, the manifestation of God. In real conclusion, for the modern religious person, the reading of scripture differs little in form, and I must really emphasize this, in form from the reading of any other book. I know it sounds sort of harsh, but this is, I think, the case. Right? For the modern religious person, religious person, the reading of scriptures differs little in form from the reading of any other book. Rather, it is the reverence and the expectation of sound teaching about God that makes the difference. I'm not saying that modern-day Christians who have lost the metaphysical worldview of antiquity and the Middle Ages do not experience intense emotion and even ecstasy at an inspired sermon or even in a private reading. What I am saying is that it is all about the words and has little to do with the things. We moderns do not see divine perfections in natural beings. Indeed, the elimination of this part of theology began even before the, Re the Reformation. Moreover, as an influential modern scholar wrote concerning the nominalist worldview, he was uh, a scholar of, he was a history of the advent of Protestantism, himself a Protestant, but as he wrote concerning the nominalist worldview of tradi traditional Protestantism, the only mysticism that is acceptable is one without the doctrine of the soul's participation of the divine essence through nature. That is actually, he made quite clear, unacceptable. That relation was cut off by Occam and others even before him. That causality, that causal relation was not real. But this is effectively to anathematize mysticism and replace it with charismatic or Pentecostal modes of religious rapture. From the perspective of a traditional mysticism, however, the question may arise. If the sacred light is taken out of things, can it still remain in the words of sacred books? Thank you.